Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome to The Whole View, episode 427, whereby I am sure Stacy will be embarrassed at some point about bodily functions. It's just <laughs> inevitable. <laughs> to be fair, you were fully on board with this topic. I did request discussed. this topic. Yeah. I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, it's interesting. I, like almost everybody, know many people in my life who have gut um, related conditions. And I honestly have no idea what the difference between IBS, IBD, uh, Crohn's colitis, like all of these different things. And when you, I was asking you a specific question and you were like, Stacy, you know, IBS and IBD are two different things. And I was like, huh? Um, So (laughs) I'm not exactly sure how I got here, but I do know that I need to, um, take a step forward in in my knowledge base. So I am really looking forward to the show, not just from the perspective of answering the specific listener question that we got, but also because it gives us a chance to talk about something which I have no idea how we haven't like actually laid down the foundation of all of this. But, you know, we talk a lot about gut health and um, that means so much like it's I mean you say the word gut health and you like it's like the size of the universe ever expanding in terms of our knowledge so obviously we can't cover all the ground in one episode but I do think that this is foundational material for understanding that yeah nuance if that makes sense yeah no and I I I mean I think that's a really good sort of intro into our listener question this week which is um, as I have you know, been researching the gut microbiome for a little over six years now. Um, and, you know, and this was when I took on this project, right, a book about gut health, um, I figured it would be like my other books, right? So my other books were typically, right, the paleo approach was about 14, 15 months between like when I started it and when it was out on bookshelves. Paleo Principles was uh, similar. The cookbooks were a little bit faster, but uh, cookbooks, you know, tend to be, they're, they're less meaty, obviously, than the big science books. And I really thought this gut health book was going to be similar. That's why people have heard me talk about it for years and years and years, and it still doesn't have a release date. And it's because it, two things. One is, uh, as you said, it's sort of like an ever-expanding universe of, of science to go through. Um, but also, it's really changed my perspective on literally everything we talk about. I really now see all of these like foundational principles of healthy choices as being like the benefits are mediated mostly through the gut microbiome. Like obviously things like supplying your body with the nutrients it needs, the raw materials it needs to do things is also a really important key principle. And it's tangential to the microbiome because the microbiome also has essential nutrients. So it's, it still involves gut health, but it's also like separately, like obviously our bodies just need vitamins and minerals and essential amino acids and essential fatty acids. So I think that, um, you know, that's, 
really the perspective. I know that our our regular listeners have heard our shows focus on gut health more and more and more over the last couple of years. And that's just because I've I've gotten to the point in my research where I feel like I finally have a really solid handle on this full, you know, it's not just one field of, of research. That's the other thing is it spans um, like dozens of different fields because the cardiovascular researcher is going to dabble in microbiome and it's, it's not just something that microbiologists are studying. So, um, so I don't think that it's an exaggeration to say gut health is everything. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that our whole body health is inextricably linked to the health of our gut. And I think that will be kind of clear as, as we dive into IBS and uh, its link to osteoporosis in this week's episode. All right, let's dive in. So this is our question this week. Sarah and Stacy. I'm so inspired by your podcast. My husband and I have been listening for years. We binged them all initially and now listen weekly while preparing dinners together. We have benefited greatly from your advice and recommended products. I have Sarah's Paleo Approach and Sleep Books. We use our Juve every day. I switched us all to Safer Beauty Counter products from Stacy about two years ago. So thank you for making such a positive difference in our lives. My mother was just diagnosed with full-blown osteoporosis, notably in her right femur bone. Her bone test four years ago was healthy. My question is whether her struggles with IBS and gut health might have played a role in her diagnosis, and what could she do now to improve it? So first of all, what a lovely human being. Mm -hmm. um, you know how we feel about complimentary, nice, positive <laughs> questions, as evidenced I, by the I fact that we're here reading it. <laughs> I never edit the nice stuff out of the questions before putting it into the outline. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, before we can answer her specific question, I think we need to kind of dive into the root cause of it, which is mm -hmm. um, there's a reason that osteoporosis exists. I think we've actually talked about it in the show several times before, and we've talked about nutrient deficiencies, which yep. then leads into... IBS and gut health and how that plays into um, nutrient deficiencies. And so maybe we just need to kind of like back up a little bit to cover that ground, talk about what some of those other things are, gut-related health issues, so to speak, um, that could then affect multiple conditions beyond osteoporosis. I'm mean, going to talk specifically answer the question of osteoporosis, I'm, I'm sure. But it's not the only thing. Like there's there's so many things. The nutrient deficiency is a problem. Uh, for sure. And I think if you if you can sort of visualize a like spider web where like the main threads coming out of the middle are the links to the various conditions, right? We have this, this middle uh, ground, which really is related to the same choices that lead to nutrient deficiencies also leading to gut problems and that sort of like radiating out and impacting health in every other way. Maybe spiderweb wasn't the best. Maybe it should have been like sunrays or something. Anyways, we've got a middle, a middle of responsible core. This is a runaway analogy and we're going to um, move on quickly, move on. Uh, Stacey, I want to start with the, the question that you kind of led with uh, right at the top of the show, which is like IBS versus IBD, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, like what 
<laughs> what is the difference between all of these things? Um, so the um, IBD stands for inflammatory bowel disease. IBS stands for irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and they're, they're different. So um, IBD includes Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So Crohn's and ulcerative colitis are two different inflammatory bowel diseases. Um, and they're just separated by what part of the bowel is imp impacted. That's the difference between Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. But they're both diseases of the intestines that are driven, actually, they're both autoimmune diseases. So they're both driven by uh, autoinflammatory processes. And so the inflammation is damaging the gut barrier, and it's that inflammation and damage to the gut barrier that's driving all of the symptoms that are associated with both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Uh, celiac disease is also a autoimmune, you know, intestinal disease. Um, so the damage is also driven by inflammation. It's not characterized as an inflammatory bowel disease because there's these other, the, the link with gluten as a trigger separates it into its own little, its little family over, you know, obviously highly related because it's also autoimmune. But we actually understand celiac in terms of the um, antibody targets of the immune system, the, the link with gluten. We understand celiac much better than actually most other autoimmune diseases. Celiac is probably the best understood in terms of the nitty gritty, like molecular details of the disease. Um, IBS, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, is actually a, di a diagnosis of exclusion. So it is what you get labeled with if you have gastrointestinal symptoms and it's not caused by any of the other things that would po could possibly cause it that we can test for. So you get the IBS label if you have, uh, really, I mean, it's like any gastrointestinal symptom, but the most common would be abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, and or constipation. So some people only have diarrhea, some people only have constipation, and some really lucky people have both. Um, those are the most common symptoms. Um, and those are symptoms that can be caused by like inflammatory bowel disease. They could be caused by uh, bowel cancer. They could be caused by diverticular disease. They could be caused by a parasite. Um, and so what what happens, and I can tell you from personal experience, because I went through all of this when I was in grad school, is uh, you go to the doctor and you're like, I have all these awful symptoms. And they basically test you for all of these other things. And if all of those tests come back negative, they go, congratulations, you have an irritable bowel. And you go, but yeah, I knew that. I knew that going in because that's the thing I was complaining about. My bowel is not only irritable, it's irritating because I have all these symptoms. Tell me what to do. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and that's the piece that's missing. So it's, it's IBS is this um, catch-all for anything else that could be possibly out of balance, out of alignment with your gastrointestinal symptom that is causing symptoms. And it's, um, it has a really high impact on quality of life. So I had um, IBSC that resolved um, when I went paleo, but I was on medications uh, for IBSC for 12 years prior prior to changing my diet. Um, and it was, uh, you know, the problem with 
the medications, right? So I, IBS-C is the constipation predominant form of IBS. Um, I actually had to go to the emergency room once because I, I had spent two weeks without a bowel movement and was having intense abdominal pain. And um, the fun part of that experience was that uh, I was in the ER over a shift change. So I had the, the doctor and the nurses and the residents and the interns in the first part and they, you know, got an x-ray and they, they all wanted to come and tell me their, their very fun diagnosis. And they came with good news. We've diagnosed you. You're full of feces. And, uh, they Shocker. thought that was a funny, <laughs> funny joke. And then meanwhile, I'm in intense pain, intense pain. It's been two weeks. Okay. Two weeks. I'm just, uh, you know, 24, 23 year old graduate student here. Um, and then shift change, new, new attending, new residents, new interns, new nursing staff, same joke. Um, was not, it was not cool. It was not my favorite day. Um, but at the, on the bright side, I, I got my diagnosis. I mean, I, I then I had to go through um, all of the testing for everything else. Um, and then I was basically prescribed, you know, laxatives and stool softeners um, for an anti, anti-spasmodics for the gut for, um, yeah, 12 years. And then I was able to change my diet. And I, I know that, um, now looking back that gluten and dairy, um, which stick a pin in that, cause we're going to talk about that later were the main drivers of those symptoms because, um, I had never, I had gone gluten-free and I had gone dairy-free at different times in my twenties to try to figure out my health. Um, and going paleo was the first time I had done both at the same time. And that's, I think the main reason why I was, I'm one of those people who has like the really obnoxious story of like magical health improvements in a really short period of time. I think for me, it was because of overt sensitivity to two foods that were eliminated altogether. Um, so I can tell you from experience that getting a diagnosis of IBS is, incredibly frustrating because also because it's not a well understood condition it doesn't have a treatment a standard treatment beyond um, symptom management and it is a condition no matter what flavor of it you have it's a condition that really strongly impacts quality of life and so there's links to not just all the GI symptoms, but also anxiety and depression. I started getting anxiety attacks around the same time in my life. Granted, I was in grad school, so, you know, we can just blame everything on grad school as well. Um, but it, it, it's something that, um, that is very, very frustrating. Um, and in large part, it's because, uh, the guidance from, a sort of standard conventional medical practitioner is going to be very limited. So I think one of the questions that I have that mm -hmm. um, I, I heard you in your inflection and frustration talk about mm -hmm. is um, this idea of um, the depression, the discomfort, 
um, do we think those things are causation or correlation? Like we, do, we know that depression can be caused by gut health issues, but yes. also from being discomfort, discomfortable. Is that a word? It is now. Uncomfortable. That's the word. There we go. There we go. <laughs> In discomfort, uncomfortable. Um, like, do you think that they are both at play or one more than the other? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. So um, to answer it, I think it's helpful to kind of go through um, the research that has tried to find a common cause for IBS. Um, And the research is frustrated a little bit because IBS might not be just one thing. It might be a bunch of different things that all get this uh, diagnosis of exclusion label. But um, research, especially in the last, uh, say, 10 years, has really pointed to two main possible causes that are probably the same thing and probably also the link between IBS and all kinds of other health conditions, including mental health challenges. So the first is there's this whole um, collection of research showing um, that uh, food intolerance may be a key driver of, of IBS symptoms. You know, we have a really good understanding of allergy symptoms is sort of in the, the, the general public, right? So people understand oh, allergies, right? Hives, um, swelling, um, itchiness, right? Anaphylactic shock, right? So we can kind of understand what an allergy is. Um, food intolerance more often than not manifests as gastrointestinal symptoms. And so it sort of makes sense that that researchers would put two and two together and say, okay, well, let's figure out what are the food intolerances here and how that might resolve things. And so there's basically been three different categories of studies. Um, One has been to look at, um, like literally we do a a blood test. We look at uh, food, allergy and food intolerance um, positives. We take those out and we see if your GI symptoms respond. And those studies have shown a pretty wide range in terms of, you know, cause there's always a placebo. So like, here's the people that we have them remove things that are not what turned up positive. And then we have this other people who remove the things that did turn up positive. Um, so compared to, you know, the people who are <laughs> removing foods that are not what showed up on their test, um, the, the magnitude of effect is typically like around 50%, which is still pretty good. Um, but it's not as impressive as the other two, uh, uh, sort of food intolerance approaches to IBS. Um, one is to put patients on a low FODMAP diet and the other bunch of research is to put people on gluten-free diets. Um, and so that research has revealed a much stronger impact. So, um, studies, you know, there's actually been enough studies looking at putting, uh, people with IBS on low FODMAP diets to do meta-analyses. And our listeners know that I love meta-analyses because it pools together the data from many studies to really hone in on the magnitude of effect. And um, the average of all of those studies is about a 70% improvement in symptoms and quality in light, of life in IBS patients after adopting a low FODMAP diet, which is a uh, very significant improvement. Um, that's, that's seven and 10. 
that seems to me, well, not seems to me, there are medications that don't have improvement of 70% of people, right? Like so, it's an effective, so it's yeah, an effective yeah. medicine if we're getting half of the people feel better. Like that's insane mm-hmm. to me, 70%. And so I'm wondering like, and I, I don't know that you have this information, right? But like, I'm wondering how, what is the percentage of doctors who are prescribing a low FODMAP diet because it is just as good, also better than other medical interventions. You know what I mean? So I haven't seen um, any studies that look at how common recommending low FODMAP diets is. Like typically when you see a, a, a medical study that evaluates the efficacy of a low FODMAP diet, in IBS, the like conclusion is doctors should do this, right? Like that's, that's usually the, the bottom like sentences and this should be a first line treatment. Um, and then it doesn't necessarily permeate. So where we see dietary interventions is in the alternative health community. So you'll see that it with functional and integrative medicine practitioners, um, and generally sort of like chiropractors, naturopaths, um, nutritionists, um, but probably not RDs, right? So this is something that ha- is a um, actually is is a primary line of uh, treatment from alternative practitioners, and still not in conventional medicine. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, even seeing a gastroenterologist, um, nobody talked about diet with me ever. It was not even remotely like on the list of things. Um, and all the diet things that I tried was all like, you know, especially at the time it was all internet. Oh, I'll try this. Yeah. And, and and for me, similar, like I was never diagnosed with these, which is interesting (laughs) because certainly (laughs) they would have applied but I think part of it is and I just want to make sure everyone who's listening is having this conversation I don't think I understood what normal movements were and so when I was having a meeting with my doctors um, certainly the information that they probably needed to make some sort of diagnosis like this would not have come up because I wasn't being descriptive or Mm -hmm. clear about what was happening with my body I'm a lot more comfortable and familiar with that now than I was. But, you know, as someone who had my gallbladder removed, like the idea of how much diet could have impacted it from a prevention standpoint, right? Like I was not at a point where I probably needed to have it removed when I first started talking about my symptoms. And as a result of removal, then I had even more digestive issues that no one talked to me about food stuff either, except for the perspective of just go on a low fat diet, Um, which, which didn't work by the way. (laughs) And and that's one of the challenges with, um, even though IBS is sort of a, it's kind of a useless diagnosis because all it is, is a, is a a name for symptoms that have no explanation. I was going to say, it's just acknowledgement of discomfort and in, you know, things aren't going well, we'll put a label on it, but there's nothing specific, right? Right, exactly. But without a gallbladder, they might not have even given you that that name. They might have just said, oh, well, that's just, yeah, it's because you have no gallbladder. Right. right? So, even though beforehand they said, 
you don't need that. Everything's going to be fine. Right. I'm making yeah. it about me. Sorry. Moving no, no, on. It's, a, it's all, <laughs> uh, isn't that, isn't that what every podcast is? It's about us. Um, no, I think that, um, I think that that is you know, one of the things that I think is very helpful about sharing your experience and sharing my experience is, uh, I think the prevalence of GI symptoms, as, as you said, Stacy, is extremely high um, because understanding and experiencing what is normal is so unusual now. And I think there's also, you know, IBS is, I think, one of those conditions where there's shades, right? So, um, so there's other possible causes than food intolerance. And actually, um, this is what's really interesting to me. So even though there's not enough data for a meta-analysis yet, um, there are studies that have taken people with IBS and basically said, like, is this non-celiac gluten sensitivity? So is this a symptom caused by gluten that is separate and apart from the autoimmune disease, celiac disease? And the the studies we do have show an even larger magnitude of effect than the low FODMAP diets. So um, there's a study that we can link to in the show notes showing 75% improvement in symptoms going gluten-free in patients with IBS. And um, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, wheat is a FODMAP. So wheat is excluded in the low FODMAP diet. So you think that a lot of these studies are people who have never been on, they're not doing any kind of special diets before they go in. That's almost always a criteria. And then they get put on either a control diet or this diet, or sometimes it's right crossover where you do your, um, they're not usually blinded because it's really hard to blind people from what they're eating, um, but it would be like a crossover. So this group is doing uh, gluten-free for a month and then they'll go back to gluten for a month and the other group does it the other way. Um, and so it's possible that the um, the reason why such a large percentage of people are responding to a low FODMAP diet is simply because they're eliminating wheat as part of that low FODMAP diet, and it's actually a wheat sensitivity. It's also possible that all of this is related to gut dysbiosis. And there, there is now this um, growing body of literature showing that with IBS, um, there is a loss of bacterial diversity, there is establishment of um, problematic opportunistic pathogen type species in the gut. There is a very dramatic lack of probiotic species, um, like all of the things that we know that are associated with health conditions in general. And that kind of imbalance in the microbial community in the gut by itself can drive those symptoms, but also can explain in a large part, the reaction to the dietary interventions, because about 60% of the inputs um, that determine what bacteria are growing in our digestive tract is diet. The other 40% is lifestyle uh, exposures, right? So that would be environmental toxins, supplements, drugs, um, your hormones, um, your like vitamin D status, um, stress, sleep, right? All of those um, activity levels, all of those other things fit into the 40%. And we know that the 
the gut microbiome can shift dramatically in composition in anywhere between a couple of days to a few weeks. Um, and that's sort of dependent on exactly, you know, what the starting microbiome is, what the diet change is, what all of the other factors are, how quickly it will sort of, um, it basically what the microbiome does when you dramatically change diet is it finds a new equilibrium. So it finds a new homeostasis where it's like, okay, you know, I'm now, I'm rearranging myself to now be stable in this new, in these new conditions. And that eventually reaching stability can take about six months after a big dietary change. But the, the biggest part of those changes are happening in the first few days to a few weeks. And so it's completely possible that, um, that some kind of, right, this, this isn't necessarily driven by poor food choices. It can be driven by unknown nutrient deficiencies like vitamin D deficiency causes gut dysbiosis. It can be driven by lifestyle factors. It can be driven by, um, say, high heavy metal exposure or pesticide exposure in your tap water, for example. And we've talked about these on shows before. We'll put notes into our previous shows in the show notes, of course. But all of those things can drive gut dysbiosis, which means you might have a, a gut bacterial profile that, say, produces a lot more gas um, when you consume a FODMAP-rich food or when you consume gluten, and then that's driving the symptoms. Um, so it it's kind of linked in the sense that... Um, you know, FODMAP intolerance is basically a measurement of gut dysbiosis, right? That is the, the uh, you know, basically either poor um, gut cellular health, right? So our cells or gut microbiome or both is the mechanism behind FODMAP intolerance. And so the, the thing in the middle here that is very likely the modifiable uh, piece for IBS is the microbiome. I think that um, this this whole idea of like all of the things that go into this, um, for example, like when you say it's putting off a gas, um, you know, a higher amount of gas, like my mind immediately went to all the people that I know and talk to who talk about having gas or being bloated. And I don't know if it's just me, but um, in this circle that I follow on um, social media, but I actually have like several influencers talking about bloating right now as being quote unquote normal. And I think about this hmm. being nope. one of those things that I'm like, just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. Right. right. And how we're seeing what'd you say, 75% of people having symptom reduction from just going gluten-free? Like that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's like brain exploding results that, um, you know, how many times I hear people say like, you know, well, I know this isn't going to make me feel good, but, but like, okay, so you're aware at least. But then I think that there's like a vast majority of people who, as you said, your doctor never talked to you about it. My doctor nope. never talked to me about it. And most people aren't seeking out functional medicine practitioners and holistic nutritionists to help them 
with these things. Most most right. people who are doing that are already kind of making dietary changes, I think, right? Like, do you think that's a safe assumption, right? Like, if you're seeking out an alter- alternative practitioner, you're probably already aware of the impacts that diet has. So I'm like, tr- wrapping my brain around how many people could be living happier lives, healthier lives, um, by making this change. And I think that's the that's the part that's kind of really important and kind of gets us to the question that was asked, which is like, okay, it isn't just about discomfort. It isn't just about, yeah, you know, uh, your pants not fitting sometimes if you're bloated. Like this, this really can cause, especially long term, serious health problems. Yes. Yeah. So if we look at IBS as a indicator of gut dysbiosis, which I think is a very well supported by the scientific literature statement. Um, it's not the only indicator of gut dysbiosis, but it's definitely, I mean, you're not experiencing IBS with a perfectly normal, healthy gut microbiome. That's just, that's just not, that's not a thing. Um, and so, um, and so we know, and actually, um, the, the research now basically links gut dysbiosis with every chronic illness. Um, it's easy to sort of think of it in terms of um, GI issues, but it's actually, it's linked to diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease. It's linked to cancer. It's linked to uh, mental health disorders. It's linked to autoimmune disease. It's linked to immune conditions like asthma, and it actually is linked to osteoporosis. Um, and so it's, it's linked in a couple of different ways. So one, our gut bacteria are really important modulators of our immune function. Um, they basically control how our immune system responds to other stimuli. Um, that, of course, is why gut dysbiosis has been linked to so many different inflammatory conditions and autoimmune conditions. Um, but it's also really relevant because one of the things that happens in gut dysbiosis, our, our gut bacteria also control our gut barrier. Um, and this is one of the things that I, I really, now having this much more detailed understanding of this, I think needs to be sort of shouted loud and clear because we talk about leaky gut all the time. We cannot talk about it in isolation without talk, uh, talking about the gut microbiome because our gut bacteria are controlling how leaky our gut barrier is. And so to fix a leaky gut, we have to fix our gut microbiomes. It is a prerequisite. And so when we look at this system as a whole and you look at how our gut bacteria are impacting the immune system and how they're impacting gut barrier, if your gut barrier is not working properly, you are not absorbing the nutrients from the foods you eat. So we know, for example, that gut dysbiosis can decrease intestinal absorption of calcium, which is, you know, the most famous bone important nutrient, although not the only one, um, we know that it can um, actually increase the formation of the cells called osteoclasts that break down bone tissue. So take a step back. Um, Even after we're done growing, our bones are being constantly remodeled. So that means they're being broken down that's done by cells called osteoclasts and then built back up. That's done by cells called osteoblasts. So blast for build, clast for crumble. (laughs) Sure. Let's, 
there's I with, have no with I confidence have no now. Yeah, sure. Um, so through most of our lives, there's a balance between osteoblast activity and osteoclast activity. So our bones are being broken down and built back up in equilibrium. And then that's how we maintain healthy bone structure. Um, in uh, aging, we start to lose that balance, but we also can lose that balance with nutritional deficiencies, with insulin resistance can, can destroy that balance, uh, with sedentary lifestyle can destroy that balance. So there's a lot of other inputs that can make osteoblasts not building bone back up as quickly as osteoclasts are breaking it down. And so, um, that becomes, um, a really important point of uh, manipulation with diet because so much of that is driven by nutritional deficiencies, but it's also linked to the gut microbiome because we know that gut dysbiosis basically breaks that equilibrium in osteoblastic and osteoclastic activity. We also know that both osteopenia, which is like the precursor to osteoporosis um, and osteoporosis have a um, basically there's an inverse relationship with bone density and microbiota diversity. So the more species you have in your gut, that's a, a hallmark of a healthy gut bacterial ecosystem. The more species you have, the more dense your bones are. The fewer species you have, the more likely you are to be osteopenic or have osteoporosis. And so, um, so we know that microbial diversity correlates incredibly strongly with bone mineral density. And we know that we see the same type of shift to a more inflammatory microbiome in osteopenia and osteoporosis as we see in diabetes and obesity. Um, and we also see uh, an overgrowth of uh, bacterial um, genera that are sort of known to be problematic inflammatory uh, opportunistic pathogens like Klebsiella, like Blaudia. Um, and so we, we can see this pretty dramatic imbalance that's, that's measurable. And so here's the link between IBS and, um, and osteoporosis. So I actually have a question about something that you said before we jump into that. Um, mm -hmm. So you mentioned this as being something that we see in people who, I think you said, um, who are obese or who have diabetes. And yeah. I want to make an effort like we are trying to call out um, differences in um, inequities from different kinds of places, I want to like ask sure. the question, if it's related to, do we think that that's specific to obesity? Or do we think that's, uh, has the potential to be seen in people who are living a lifestyle associated with the show that we talked about, um, gosh, a couple episodes ago, I wish I could remember the number, because um, I'm probably going to refer back to it a lot. We'll put a link in the show notes. But where we talked about the fact that um, a lot of things aren't actually obesity driven, but they're more lifestyle driven, because we see more commonly people who are obese, smoking, or not eating foods that would support gut health in this case, or are not exercising. And those are things that also contribute to um, 
some of these factors. So I'm just kind of asking if we can call that out a bit. And I I recognize Mm -hmm. that the science probably doesn't separate that because we rarely see that that's studied. And that's why we had a dedicated show to it. But does that make, am I clear? Yeah, yeah. And I'm so excited about this question. So here is a really interesting chicken versus egg phenomenon with, um, uh, with weight gain. Um, we see this characteristic, what's, it's basically referred to as an obesity microbiome. And that microbiome seems to be driving the, um, increased health risks that are associated with obesity, right? So that microbiome profile is more inflammatory. Um, it changes, right? There's all kinds of signaling molecules that change. And so we know that that microbiome profile is, can be driving insulin resistance can be driving the increased inflammation that increased risk of cardiovascular disease, for example. And there are studies, at least in animals, that show us that the the gut dysbiosis may come first. So they've done um, studies in animals where they've taken um, one group of mice and put them on a super unhealthy diet so that they start gaining weight and they become obese. And then they do a fecal microbiota transplant into lean, healthy mice. And the lean, healthy mice, without any change in their diet, they're still on their healthy, normal mouse chow, start gaining weight. And so it reinforces the idea of obesity as a symptom and not as uh, the actual problem itself. And a large part of that could be mediated through the gut microbiome. And to exactly your point, Stacey, the things that cause that shift um, to an obesity microbiome, and I'm using air quotes here that, I mean, I know I use air quotes quite frequently in this audio medium, so it's really something I need to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but the things that can cause that microbial shift to a microbiome that's associated with insulin resistance and inflammation, all these other like risk factors for health problems is driven by uh, low vegetable intake, uh, high saturated fat intake, um, low, right? So low um, whole food sources of carbohydrates, low fiber. Um, it can be driven by vitamin D deficiency. It can be uh, driven by inactivity. It can be driven by high stress, right? So all of those inputs um, are things that we 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 know to expect a shift in the microbiome that would be a shift towards this type of gut dysbiosis that is seen commonly in people who are obese. And it actually reinforces the idea that the in, the most important input is the healthy choices, not actually the weight. And this could be the link between those things. And so it actually completely fits in with our, I also do not recall the episode number of that show, um, but our, our episode on uh, body image being a really important driver. Um, 421. Four, I googled okay, it. Excellent. Four twenty. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you know, stress is also an input. So high stress can also cause this type of of um, gust, gut dysbiotic shift. So y- the answer is yes. I don't know what if I don't know if it was a yes no question, um, but I wanted to say yes because it sounded very positive. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but 
the the answer is that um, this shift in gut microbiome is linked with the type of choices that are more common in people who become obese and is a separate thing from uh, health at any size. So um, it actually reinforces the idea that um, if you are eating a healthy diet and you're active and you're getting enough sleep and you're actively managing stress, that those things are going to be health promoting no matter what your actual weight is. It actually helps to, to bolster that. I, I just, I just want to say to our listeners that a Sarah did not get a, get a heads up on that question. So her knowledge is just, it's just sitting there on the surface, which is always impressive, but also I'm just want to give myself a little pat on the back <laughs> because <laughs> I, I just, I feel like after, you know, 427 episodes, I want to make an effort that when we say things like, we see this commonly in obese people. I think as an obese person, it's easy to feel guilty and to be like, oh, well, this is going to happen to me and I'm screwed. And, you know, then you have to decide whether or not you want to participate in this, you know, weight loss cycle, which we've all also per- talked extensively about being damaging for your health. And I think mm-hmm. the key ultimately comes down to the things that we talk about, which is that if you are moving your body, if you're sleeping, if you're eating vegetables and you're living a low inflammatory, high nutrient lifestyle, that is absolutely the best thing that you can do for your body. And stressing about, well, I'm overweight and therefore I have all these other things going against me. Like just try to remind yourself when you feel that or think that, like I am doing everything that I can to support my health in the way that science supports. Just keep telling yourself that because that is what will help us all. Whether you're underweight, correct weight, overweight, like it doesn't matter, you know, how you're feeling, what you're doing in your life. All you can do is what you can do with what the science supports today, right? As we've talked about, it's it's ever expanding. Who knows what we'll find out tomorrow, (laughs) But you just got to do the best you can with the knowledge that you have today and stressing about it and feeling shame or guilt or being frustrated that you can't put weight on and that you're, you know, worried about nutrient deficiencies. Like it goes both ways. And none of that stress and anxiety is helping your health. So I'm just I just want to like, ooh, I heard something and I'm just we're trying over here to help everyone be their best. That's all we're doing. No shame, no guilt all the time. Um, hashtag 100% agree. Can you put a percent in a hashtag? I don't see why not. I don't know if that like percent would have would it thing actually ends it. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, it's, yeah, yeah, it's such a weird system, but you can't hashtag on a podcast either. I know you have difficulties <laughs> about this um verbal medium, but yeah, nor you can't use air quotes effectively and also um hashtags aren't effective either. Also so. fist pumping doesn't work. Jazz hands. <laughs> Jazz hands. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's not very many high fives happening here either. Okay, maybe um, we should get back to the question. <laughs> okay. Let's let's talk about um action items. Okay. So I want to um sort of briefly review uh, a lot of information that we've covered on uh, podcasts over the last 
year to two years about um, things that are really important for gut health. Um, so we'll talk about basically uh, fixing IBS and then talk about uh, bone health nutrients in general. There's a large amount of overlap. So one of the things that's really interesting about the gut microbiome is that it is very sensitive to the nutrient density of our diets. So our gut bacteria are pretty good at making B vitamins, um, not B12. They don't make a ton of B12, but they can make the simpler B vitamins. Um, and uh, that's about it. <laughs> so they're, uh, they, they can make some K2. Okay, they can make vitamin K2 as well. Um, they can't make minerals because um, periodic table of elements that's, you know, alchemy has been busted for a few hundred years. Um, and they they have a hard time with the, the fat-soluble vitamins. So they, they're, other than K2, they're not making E or D or A. And so um, that doesn't mean they don't need them, right? They, they have essential nutrients just like we have essential nutrients. And we know that um, our, one of the best things that we can do, right, we need to feed them. Their favorite food generally is fiber. Um, we need to make sure they have antioxidants because – they need those to basically prevent oxidative damage the same way we do. So that's all of the plant phytochemicals. Um, and we need to make sure that they have essential nutrients, um, including things like the animal form of vitamin A that we're getting from liver, um, including vitamin D, which we're, they're actually using the vitamin D that is stored in our body that we're making from the sun. So um, they are really... Um, they're really sensitive to how nutrient sufficient we are. And that's also really important because a lot of the nutrients that are really important for our gut microbiome are also really important for um, bone health. So I just want to sort of introduce this topic that way. Um, to give a, a like run, like super quick rundown of the action items that are all very, very thoroughly presented in my two new eBooks, the Gut Health Guidebook and the Gut Health Cookbook. Um, the, the diet that best supports a gut microbiome is one that is very high in a wide variety of vegetables, fruit, mushrooms, nuts and seeds, if you can eat them, um, basically whole plant foods. Um, there are some legumes that are good for the gut microbiome and only a couple of grains. And we've talked about that on this show. So um, we'll put uh, links to previous episodes where we've talked about, you know, we just recently had a podcast about uh, why it's important to aim for some ballpark 30 different fruits and vegetables a week and how that improves the gut microbiome. We've had four different shows on why eating lots of vegetables is really important in different parts of that. We've talked about um, the gut health benefits of nuts. We've talked about the gut health benefits of uh, fish oil. Um, so increasing fish in intake is another really key part of supporting the gut microbiome. Um, we've talked about hydration and how that impacts the gut microbiome and why we don't want to drink alkaline water or contaminated tap water. We've talked about vitamin D levels and why that's important. Um, we've talked about why extra virgin olive oil is so amazing for the gut microbiome. So all of these things that we've, we've already covered in dedicated episodes on the show, and we'll put links to all of those episodes in the show notes for anybody who missed them the first time around or wants to go back and review them. But it really boils down to the things that impact our gut bacteria. They love it when we eat a high uh, vegetable and fruit and mushroom diet. 
They really, they vastly prefer fish um, over other um, animal protein sources, but, you know, grass-fed meat is still good. Poultry is still good. Um, the protein sources that are not are like soy and casein from dairy. Um, they're very sensitive to our vitamin D levels. So get vitamin D levels checked. That's important also for osteoporosis to address vitamin D and vitamin K2, which we talked about also in a recent episode. So we'll put a link in the show notes to that. Uh, again, sort of snout to tail eating and high vegetable consumption is sort of the key to nutrient sufficiency. Um, so that's really important. And then um, one of the things that we can do to sort of fast track that shift in the gut microbiome is eating probiotic foods like sauerkraut, kombucha, kefir, that is inoculating the microbiome with a high diversity of organisms, if, assuming it's a, like a wild fermented sauerkraut. Um, but we've also talked about, um, episode 329, we talked about the link between carb intolerance and, and gut health. Um, and that I think is really important here because, one of the things that I do not recommend for IBS is a low FODMAP diet, despite that science showing 70% of people um, responding to it. We have additional scientific studies showing that low FODMAP diets, even if it improves symptoms, makes gut dysbiosis worse. And that's because a lot of the foods that we're cutting out, so some FODMAPs, I like wheat and dairy, like lactose is a FODMAP, um, those I, I don't generally think are awesome. Um, and certainly from a gut microbiome perspective, not making a big improvement to the gut microbiome. Um, but other the other foods that are often cut out in a low FODMAP diet are the entire cruciferous family of vegetables, cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, kale, um, often fruits that are well-known. So like the apple family is cut out, stone fruits are cut out. These are fruits that are well-known to improve the gut microbiome. And studies show that the different families of fruits and vegetables are independently beneficial. So there's a benefit to in increasing how many vegetables and fruit we're consuming, period. And there's a benefit to making sure that we're choosing from as many different families of fruits and vegetables as possible. So on a low FODMAP diet, we cut out a couple of the best studied families for improving gut microbiome composition and increasing uh, diversity, decreasing those bad um, bacteria that we don't want, and increasing the really important probiotic species. And studies have actually shown that um, you know, they, there's something called the dysbiosis index. So it kind of takes into account all those different measures of whether or not a gut microbiome is healthy and um, showed that a low FODMAP diet actually increases the dysbiosis index in, you know, order of magnitude half of the, of the patients studied. Um, and that's in part because when you start cutting out those foods, not everyone's going to replace them with other vegetables, but it's also because those fruits and vegetables are so important. So with symptoms though, um, they're, they're, I mean, and this is, you know, not my idea. This comes from, you know, functional medicine practitioners who sort of specialize in low FODMAP diets as a short-term intervention. Um, you'll see that even within like SIBO experts now, they're moving away from low FODMAP diets as a long-term strategy. They'll do it for a short-term intervention to address symptoms, and then they work on gradually increasing those FODMAPs. So that's what I've always heard is that it is, I always thought it was intended to be 
a short term and that if you are making progress on healing your gut, slowly adding a lot of those things, specifically like garlic and onions that are Mm -hmm. at the base of a lot of these dishes would be easier to integrate kind of like, um, we hope that an autoimmune protocol would be right. Like eventually if you get to a place where you've reduced the inflammation in your body, then maybe having, you know, a spice blend on some jerky or whatever, isn't going to be the end all be all for you. But, um, it's, it's interesting that it's like, knew that that is apartheid because well, I'm like well when I first heard about it years ago I always thought it it's was not so I think practitioners who've been using it have always used it as a most of them have used it as a short-term intervention and that a short term I mean two weeks um so much shorter than you would say do elimination phase of the AIP before doing um, reintroductions. And it's basically, it's purely for symptom management. Let's get you comfortable and then we can work on increasing these foods back in. Um, it's, um, and that makes sense from the perspective of the little friends that you're feeding. It gives you time to kind of starve them off, right? Those, those change a lot faster. Your, your gut bacteria can composition can change faster than you can manage inflammation in your body, so to say, which can take much longer time. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, unfortunately we see a low FODMAP, I mean, gaps in SCD diets are sort of similar in the sense that they're, they're, the idea is that we starve bad bacteria. Unfortunately, we starve good bacteria at the same time. And um, we're cutting out and all of those dietary strategies, we're cutting out some of the most important prebiotic foods. So the foods that are feeding the most desirable species. So, Um, I really recommend like a whole diet approach to the gut microbiome. Again, that's why I wrote the gut health guidebook. And that is a incredibly detailed, all of this information with all of the whys behind it. And, you know, a, a final chapter that just has like bullet points. Here's, here's what to do. Um, but it, it really requires changing fat intake. So reducing total fat intake Our our gut bacteria don't like high fat diets. So, um, 30% calories from fat is probably a great level to be at and is pretty easy if you're like 30% calories from fat is just, uh, you know, you roast some vegetables and some fat and you eat meat and fish. Um, maybe you put some salad dressing on your salad, but you're not like adding a stick of butter to your breakfast type, um, type approach. Um, they, uh, need enough protein. So, um, at least or 15 calorie, 15% of calories from protein, but 20 to 30% is probably a better place, especially if a lot of that protein is coming from seafood and, uh, incorporate snout to tail eating and they need a ton of fiber. So, um, you know, studies basically show that the USDA guidelines of 25 grams for women and 30 grams for men is less than half of probably what we actually need. So we're probably looking at more like 40 to 50 grams of fiber a day, which is doable. I mean, it's, it's kind of where you end up if you, um, eat a very vegetable and fruit, if, especially if you don't avoid root vegetables and you don't avoid fruit, cause those are our most concentrated sources of fiber. Um, it's kind of where you end up with a diet that sort of includes all of those things. Um, then changing, right. So changing the fats. So, uh, making extra virgin olive oil, your go-to cooking fat and, either increasing fish intake or taking fish oil or both. Um, that vitamin D status is really important. And then lifestyle is really key 
um, input into microbiome composition as well. So that means getting enough sleep on a consistent schedule that also improves uh, immune function and insulin sensitivity, which is also an input to, to bone health. Managing stress also affects both <laughs> insulin sensitivity and immune function. Um, so that's going to be a separate input to, to bone health. Um, increasing activity, and that means, um, like, especially in the context of talking about osteoporosis, weight-bearing activity, which is like walking, um, is super, super important. Um, so uh, aside on our bones, um, there is a thought that um, our bone cells are what are called mechanosensor cells. So they actually respond to mechanical stress. So that would be you know, like walking, right? So that your when your foot hits the ground, your bone cells go, oh, we should be stronger. Um, and it actually will signal to osteoblasts to produce more bone. So walking is absolutely like the best activity that you can do for the health of your bones. Um, but exercise in general, like anything that's going to move your own body weight around is going to be really, really helpful. And it turns out also great for the gut microbiome. Um, and so those things are um, really important. The last thing is that our our, our gut bacteria have, uh, they cycle throughout the day. So um, certain species are more active right after we eat and others are more active in between meals. And it's really important to have that balance. Um, and so we actually have healthier guts in adults when we eat three meals a day and keep keep them like five hours apart. Um, and have that fasting period overnight, which would be, you know, 12 hours is plenty. We're not talking about intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting, we've talked about on the show before, um, is not as cool as it sounds, and the science does not actually show that it's pretty great. Um, but a 12-hour, right, so say eating 12 to 14 hours, right, eating dinner, say, at 6 o'clock in the evening, going to bed at 10, um, and then having breakfast, say, at seven in the morning, right? That's, that's about that right, um, that right range. And also is a, is a pretty good way to support sleep because we sleep better if we go to bed after having more time between our last meal and when we go to sleep. So it kind of, all of these things really interestingly, um, work together. So, right. If you're, um, active, that helps manage stress, when you're managing stress, that helps you sleep more. When you sleep more, that helps you be more motivated to be active and also helps reduce stress. Um, also, when you reduce stress and you sleep more and you're active, you're more likely to make um, healthier food choices, uh, reduces appetite, reduces cravings. Like all of these things actually work together. It's, it's why having a holistic approach to health is so important because if you modify one thing, you may get a benefit from it but you're also putting in a lot more effort than when you modify all of these things together because when you work on all these things together, it tends to make the changes easier, right? So if you're getting enough sleep, it's a lot easier to eat that diet that's full of fruits and vegetables because you're not going to crave the, the junk food as much. Um, so all of those things, when, when we kind of implement them together, even if it's still right, making iterative progress, it doesn't mean like we have to go all into perfection all at once, but even when we just make sure that all of these things are on our radar together as important choices, it can get us on this path where 
the healthy choices are becoming easier and easier and easier, and we get to healthy habit formation much faster that way. What I haven't heard you say is that we just need to be drinking large glasses of fortified cow's milk. Yeah, weird. Um, <laughs> so I joke, but I do want to point out, um, I you know, because this is a show and maybe you're listening for the first time and you, you know, are looking for bone health and you're like, what, who are these ladies and why aren't they just telling you to drink milk and eat yogurt? The ingredients that are added to those are what are beneficial most often. So Sarah, you've talked about vitamin D several times, like vitamin D is fortified into the commercial dairy products that you Mm -hmm. find. And you can find a lot more higher nutrient rich calcium foods in a lot of the things that we've talked about. So when you break down the nutrients that are in milk that would be beneficial for the bones, um, it is all those things that we've talked about. So I I think sometimes we assume that our listeners like know all of this because we've said it 426 prior times. But um, it's just it's so worth saying that vegetables are not only a nutrient source for all of these um, minerals and vitamins that we've talked about, but it's also adding the fiber element and um, antioxidant element and they're less inflammatory than casein would be. So that's how like all of this comes into play. But I know that we've kind of talked all of the the detail of it, but I just wanted to kind of put out there, that's why um, it's not <laughs> on our list, but is on other um, I'm, common. I'm lists. actually, I'm going to, I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring some shocking science into this conversation so um, there are a number of studies that show that the strongest dietary factor correlating with healthy bones is fruit and vegetable intake, um, much more strongly than dairy intake. And if you look at the scientific evidence on dairy and bone health, it's actually very mixed. There are even some studies showing that higher dairy consumption increases risk of fractures and osteoporosis. Um, and that probably is because of this gut microbiome link. Um, and because the calcium in vegetables is actually more easy, it's easier for our bodies to absorb. It's called more bioavailable. So it's actually easier for our bodies to absorb that calcium, uh, than it is to absorb the calcium from, from dairy products. Um, not to mention, right. Calcium is only one mineral in bone. We also need phosphorus and magnesium and, uh, potassium, uh, as well. Um, we're getting that from a lot of, of vegetables and fruits. Um, and also, you know, uh, bone is only like 65% mineral. The other 35% is protein, almost all of which is type one collagen. And I know we talked last week about doing a collagen show. Um, but this is why bone broth is such an important food for gut health as well. We tend to um, reduce our ability to make collagen as we age. Um, and so it's a, it's another, um, actually really interestingly, right. That's linked to our collagen formation is also linked to vitamin C. Again, there's the fruits and vegetables. Um, it's also linked to copper. Again, there's the fruits and vegetables, um, seafood as well, right. We're getting a lot of these nutrients from seafood. Um, and it's, um, 
It's also linked with stress, with uh, chronic inflammation, with insulin. And so, um, so increasing collagen intake from like a whole food source like bone broth um, is also really, really like that's another really important bone health superfood. Um, and then what else have we mentioned? We mentioned vitamin D approximately a million times. I really want to emphasize the vitamin D. I think it's emphasized. And I um, had a moment where you were talking about um, the efficacy of uh, vegetables, fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. for bone health. And I imagined you dropping a mic, but it being like a femur. <laughs> <laughs> disturbing visual it's a good thing it's yeah. a pod of uh, uh audio i don't medium have any as femurs in my immediate vicinity other that's, than the two that are attached to my body that's good please don't drop those no 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 plans on that um actually so here's a here's another link to the fodmaps the vegetables that are the best sources of dietary calcium are the cruciferous vegetables um so it's another to me it's another reason why a low FODMAP approach has very limited utility. So I want to be very clear and specific about our listener's question today, which is, could her struggles with IBS and gut health have played a role in her diagnosis? I think we've clearly said the science supports that being a yes. Uh, What could she do now to improve it is following protocols for improving the gut health with being mindful of that short-term FODMAP approach or um, talking to a functional medicine doctor or, you know, holistic health practitioner, however she's going to go about it in terms of, um, you know, figuring out what could be the actual gut dysbiosis um, that she's experiencing, whether, you know, it's SIBO or anything. Who knows? It's it's all hidden. Our little pets in there. Who knows what they're doing? <laughs> right. But um, I I want to just kind of emphasize, in addition to all the lifestyle factors and, and things that you talked about, you kind of brought it back home with bone broth. And um, this is one of those things where when you're experiencing health issues with a certain part of your body, the best thing that you can do, well, I won't say the best thing. One of the best things that you can do is to consume um, animal parts of that body. So in this case, to support your bones, other animals' bones are going to have those nutrients to support mm-hmm. your own. The same way with, for example, liver health, right? Like yeah. we talk about um, uh, eating more organ meats, specifically if you're trying to support your liver, you could have liver of other animals and or take a supplement of dehydrated liver if you can't stomach it yourself. But um, in having bone broth, you know, there are a lot of different ways to include that. And I, I imagine that when people say, when, when people hear us say, drink more bone, bone broth, the answer isn't just... Um, it's not just a mug of broth with breakfast. Right. You're like, you could do that if you're, if you're ready to take that on. But it's also things like making a pot roast once a week with a bone in chuck roast. It's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, braising meats with the bones and then 
having a way to consume the liquid that comes with it. So like for me, I like to treat that as almost like a gravy over like a cauliflower mash with a pot roast or, um, you know, there's so many different ways to, especially now, if you're listening to this as we enter the fall and winter season, like making soups and stews and different kinds of things like that. Um, Just any time a recipe calls for, most of them call for vegetable broth because it's like what is common um, in our society these days, I always just use a bone broth that I have. And we try to always have homemade at home. But you could also find a lot of different brands now making quality. You just want to make sure that it is real bone broth. Um, If something says it's a stock or yeah, if it's something says it's a stock, that's not something we go for. We, we're looking for something well, made with bones. So technically, so the, the technical difference, now the labeling difference is a different thing. We do have a whole show on bone broth, by yeah. the way. But I was going to say, bone stock is bone broth with aromatic vegetables added. Yeah, but if it just says stock, But if it just says stock, it probably just means we, we, we used some yeast-based flavor enhancer and yes. a few of it, some onions. Yes, it's an MSG and some celery instead of um, taking the time to slow and long cook um, the bones so that they are soft and that's how the nutrients come out. So another thing is definitely if you are not sure how to make your own, which is obviously the most cost effective way to do so and super easy, we promise. We'll put a link in the show notes to our bone broth show because we spent a whole hour telling you how to make it the absolute best way Um, and different cooking methods and why it's important and all of that kind of stuff. So um, as this is an osteo process show. You know, I, I joked about milk, but to me, like one of the most important things to do is to nourish your bones with the nutrient that you need to consume from other animal well, bones, because that's where you're going to get. And there is, there is science to support that increasing intake of collagen rich foods like bone broth actually does increase bone mineralization in postmenopausal women who are osteopenic. So it's, it's um, not just something that makes sense. It also has science to support it, which is my favorite way (laughs) to uh, come to conclusions. Way to bring around my woo woo ness with real science. Um, Yay! I always, except when talking about the moon, am coming from a place of science-backed information, no matter how woo-woo I sound. I want to thank you if you've made it this far into the show. And um, hopefully this has been helpful. We are going to follow up with a collagen show. I know we just talked Mm -hmm. a lot about bone broth, but... um, Collagen synthesis and collagen consumption is next on the docket. Um, as soon as we can get Sarah to wrap her uh, brain around all of the science and information, I know she's been so researching much, for weeks. So much science. <laughs> so we will come with that hopefully next week, but um, if not in the future. But if you have follow up questions to this, I know we covered a lot of ground from gut health. Um, 
IBS, IBD, as well as osteoporosis. So we'd love to hear from you on social media, in the contact form of our blog. Um, you, If you get our emails, you can always just reply. So definitely subscribe to our newsletters. And um, if you are part of our Patreon family, that is the absolute best way to get a hold of us, um, the quickest and the easiest. So make sure that you pop over to Patreon, look up the whole view, or you can type in either one of our names and we will come up as content creators for you and you can get the truth about how we really feel about this show right now. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. That was really terrible. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. Awkward ending at the end. I mean, better than an awkward ending in the middle. <laughs> I hope we don't have an awkward ending in the middle. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Wouldn't be the middle now, would it? Okay. It would I'm going to call you back. Okay. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. I was waiting for you in Zoom for five minutes. <laughs> oh. You know, um, we don't record with Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> We haven't ever recorded with Zoom. I am aware. I think maybe I'm just a little zoomed out. A little Zoom fatigue. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it takes obviously like over 427 episodes to to get it down. To figure out where, yeah. where to go. Yeah. <laughs> Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.